Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio, and my name's James Whitmore. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land this show is being broadcast from, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. We need your help to keep Out of the Blue on air and keep bringing you important stories about the ocean. We're two-thirds of the way through our fundraising target and need your help to get us the rest of the way. If you can make a donation, head to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate or call us during business hours on 03 9419 8377. Recently, the Federal Government released the long-awaited State of the Environment Report. It's a five-year report into things like climate, extreme weather, pollution, biodiversity, marine ecosystems, coasts and urban environments. Overall, the state of the environment is poor and getting worse. There are over 1,900 threatened species, and that's 200 more than in 2016, which was the last time the report was released. Nearly 8 million hectares have been cleared since 2000, and habitat loss is a threat to over 70% of the threatened species listed in the report. The report finds that many marine ecosystems are still healthy, with the exception of reefs. Species such as crocodiles and whales show some of the rare signs of recovery in Australia's environment. But the report warns increasing environmental pressure, particularly of climate change. We'll be right back after this announcement. DigiTube, people, place, language. Connecting stories, culture and language across Australia. Contribute your content in digitube.com.au. Sign up for a free account and select your options for streaming, download and broadcast promotion. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio. Imagine swimming through murky water and discovering something strange and totally new. Well, that's what researchers found in Western Port Bay. A couple of years ago, scientists were investigating records of corals in the bay and discovered instead amazing bryozoan reefs in shallow water. Bryozoan reefs used to be common in the prehistoric world, but today really big reefs in such shallow water are extremely rare. To find out more about this exciting discovery, I spoke to Travis Dutka from La Trobe University. Hi Travis, just wondering if you could swim us through this discovery of these reefs. We're out in Western Port Bay, we're in the water with maybe our scuba gear on, what do we actually see? Well, uh, in the particular area where the bryozoan reef systems are found, you're likely to not see much because visibility is dreadful. Mm. Um, it's it's a, a key sort of attribute of that region of Western Port. But biogen- it's a biogenic reef system. So biogenic, most people um, think of things like coral reef systems where there's little creatures like polyps or zooids which secrete a calcium carbonate structure and then that forms a habitat which can then be utilised by other taxa uh, in lots of many ways for settlement um, of lava or protection from predation or a feeding opportunity for other uh, organisms. So 
these bryozoan uh, reef systems are effectively and functionally like coral reef systems, but they're fundamentally different. They fall in a completely separate phyla. These are non-photosynthetic, so they actually do well in poor visibility, and that's probably why they've been out of sight and out of mind and flourishing in this region. They were discovered uh, and misnamed as the corals uh, back in the 1820s when the oyster fishery used to run dredges through there and scooping up the oysters to start making lime to build the cities around the, the country. Mm. And in doing so, they documented that in this particular region, in the what's known as the real sec sector, there were all of these elaborate uh, corals. They called them corals back then. Taxonomists hate that term <laughs> because it's not, they're not corals. But they were the first to document them. Um, and they hated them because they would clog up the mouth of the dredge when they were trying to get the oysters. Uh, but so the oyster fisheries sort of collapsed by about 1920 as they found alternative uh, building materials um, and the catches of oysters declined uh, with over-harvesting. So they... Um, yeah, so this is the uh, documented history of the area, but it was only recently that we discovered that they're not coral in, at all. They're, in fact, bryozoa, and this is, make, is what makes them very significant because these are really large bryozoa. Typically, bryozoa form... They're a colonial invertebrate, which form small little sort of grapefruit-sized colonies, but these are forming extensive mounds, which are in the order of one and a half metres tall uh, and wide, and they form in this particular region these really unique rows, uh, which is probably to do, to do with the, the uh, parental substrate that was there um, pre the uh, disturbance of the habitat in the, um, the eastern seaboard where the sediment load entering the bay has changed the area and they're probably now just growing at keeping their heads above the, the sediment load and uh, so these bryozoan are unique because of they're um, made up predominantly of three species and two uh, of those species are in the same genus and they um, are a fen straight or poured uh, bryozoa and we don't know of anywhere in the world where there's uh, Trifilozoan um, bryozoan reefs, and also they're um, typically very fragile. They're called lace corals, that's their other uh, name. Mm. Uh, but in other regions of the world, like New Zealand, where they've had fisheries such as scallop dredging and whatnot, uh, there's been a loss of their reef systems and they've never recovered. Uh, certainly uh, not showing any great signs of recovery. So we're in a fortunate position where they've been tucked away, out of sight, out of mind. No one really uses this area for commercial purposes or um, de um, development, and there's not much um, recreational diving that occurs here because of the currents and the poor visibility. People tend to go to beautiful visibility places to do their diving. So they've relatively remained um, un unheard of until now. And you've actually been doing some mapping of them using echo sounding, is that right? Ye yes, so we've got a multifaceted research program underway trying to firstly uh, characterise 
the extent and map the, the region, and we've done that with some uh, um, multi-beam um, bathymetry at high resolution, which is costly, but we did that for the purposes of um, documenting it and mapping the area, and now we're coming up with other uh, novel ways and cheaper ways to try to monitor it over time. So you can, these have a, um, a hard resonance, the ones that so the return from the sounder that comes back uh, actually gives a, off a, a pretty strong signal. So looking at the backscatter, we're able to then um, map um, these uh, structures and we're trying to roll out a whole range of research projects looking into the growth, uh, the establishment and the history, the age of these reef systems. We're currently working on publishing some work on the biodiversity that's associated with these reefs. They're important because they create a bit of a, um, a lot of habitat, but they create a, a hotspot, a biological hotspot, compared to the surrounding uh, neighbouring habitat of sediment um, where there's lower levels of abundance and richness. Uh, we're finding that in these localised bryozoan reef systems there's uh, higher abundance and uh, richness of various taxa. Mm. As you mentioned, I mean, we often think of reefs as coral, um, but that's, I mean, there are lots of different um, organisms that make reefs and particularly in the whole history of the planet, Bryozoans have been sort of significant reef builders, haven't they? Exactly. So uh, there's something in the order of five to 6,000 extant uh, bryozoans uh, that we know of. The, it's only the marine ones which form these hard structures. The, the freshwater versions don't secrete a skeleton and they form like a gelatinous blob, which doesn't really offer much support to other things. But uh, in the marine sphere, they're really big bio uh, generators uh, creating a wealth of uh, opportunity for other taxa and, and some bryozoa are actually encrusting so they're not a true reef so there might be a pile of rocks and boulders and they grow over the top of that but the actual overarching structure is actually the rock with just a thin layer of bryozoa over it but these are truly biogenic because out of nothing they're creating these vast uh, mounds and we've calculated that there's, um, to our estimates, there's about 1.74 square kilometres of reef system made up of, of uh, these biogenic uh, bryozoan reefs. I always find bryozoans a little tricky to get my head around because they are animals, they're not yes. corals. What do, the, what do the actual animals look like and, and what do they eat? They're, well, they're, a, they're a, an invertebrate filter-feeding... Um, zooid, which is in the order of about a millimetre long, and they live colonial, colonially together. That's a difficult one to say. Mm -hmm. uh, and, yeah, so in their colony, they'll um, move around, but they'll feed. They have these feeding uh, apparatus, which they stick out, and they capture microscopic organisms retracted in. But they're just a very small animal. They have a mouth, a stomach, and an anus, and they... Um, they can, um, you know, they, they do everything that an animal does and they're just very small, but together they can secrete this um, 
calcium carbonate structure which forms these really intricate and um, complex habitats. So these, some of these uh, bryozoan, they're, they're hard to imagine, but um, if you look at um, something like a, a lovely flower, there's lots of folds and layers and gaps and things uh, in between where animals can uh, move about. What's it like to discover something like this, of this significance, its size and you know, the species that are creating this, this type of reef? As a scientist, it must be pretty amazing. It is, and in fact, none of this work is made possible without um, the Adrian Flynn, who is uh, my industry partner uh, from Fathom Pacifics. Uh, he's a marine ecologist who's been doing consultancy work for a long time now, and he's the first person and the expert in the area to actually realise the significance of this area. The area has been well known in the grey matter for, for fishermen and whatnot for a long time, but it was only from about 2016 that we realised that it's not coral at all, it's bryozoa, and that makes them really significant globally because there's really uh, not many examples of such expansive uh, and well um, well preserved uh, bryozoan reef systems. Most have been degraded along the work in other places of the world. So we're in a fortunate position that we've got something that we don't know quite uh, the, the, the history of it, how big it was previous to what we knew, uh, how expensive it was. But we've now got an opportunity to know what it will look like in the future, having extensively mapped it. Mm. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's just one of these amazing uh, uh, things, uh, just serendipitously finding that it's been out of sight, out of mind, uh, and no one's really interacted. There was no documenting of it in the Indigenous culture. So it's uh, as, a, as a scientist, it's created a really exciting opportunity in space to work in uh, there's so many different research questions to, to tackle mm. and given that it's so special and so unique but also given that it's its history of i mean it, it was initially discovered through through um, mining oysters um is, and uh, you've mentioned how um it, it, the the growth of the bryozoans is keeping up with the sediment is there are there any threats that um that opposed to these bryozoan reefs and is there anything that we do need to do to look after them? Well, currently they fall outside the auspices of any marine park so they aren't really afforded too much protection at the moment but we are at the initial stage of just trying to document well, how do they repair, how fast do they grow, how quickly do they settle and re-establish new colonies there are lots of potential threats, such as sedimentation, as I've, I've mentioned. Uh, we need to probe deeper into the um, sediment to, to work out where the underlying matrix was or the parental substrate. So sedimentation is particularly uh, likely to be a, a threatening process because also it can become abrasive and cause damage as particles move through with the, the strongish currents that run through this area. Um, physical damage from um, fishing, anchoring and gear is a potential threat. Um, when people drop a, an anchor with chain, 
um, and the tide changes, it sweeps around, and that can potentially cleave and, and cause damage. But we need to document the level of threat uh, to these things. But also, uh, there's many many levers we can pull to conserve these structures without the need of going to a, uh, a an air, uh, end point of um, putting a fence around or anything silly like that. We can look at we need to understand a lot more first before we can work out which levers to pull in order to conserve them. That was Travis Ducker from La Trobe University. After the break, we'll be learning about efforts to stop sea urchins eating their way through our bays. But first, here's a song. This is Maisha with All My Time. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio. Save you from yourself. Save you from yourself. So let me say it. Right. 
I'm Philippe Cousteau from Earth Echo International, and you're listening to Out of the Blue, 855 AM, 3CR's Marine and Ocean News Program. That was Maisha with All My Time, and you're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio. Port Phillip Bay has a sea urchin problem. These spiky round echinoderms, relatives of sea stars in fact, are munching their way through seaweeds in some of the bay's most precious marine sanctuaries. But rangers are on the front foot in halting the damage sea urchins are doing. To find out more, I spoke to Jill Wheeler from Parks Victoria. Jill, can you take us under the waves? You've been culling sea urchins. Can you tell us how how that happens? Yeah, no worries. Um, so most of my work has been focused in Ricketts Point and Jawbone Marine Sanctuaries. Um, and we've sort of been looking at urchins there over the last three to four years. Um, and we've really seen a dramatic change in the underwater landscape that you see when you go out there. Um, I know a lot of our community have seen that too. Um, so over the last few years, there's been a real reduction in the amount of algae in that system, and that's correlated with a really high number of urchins. So a few years ago, you would go out and see lots of diverse different colours, and today, um, in some areas, you really just see what we call an urchin barren, which is kind of like an alien-looking landscape with lots of urchins everywhere and not a lot else. Um, so when we're going out underwater, our intention is to kind of assess that and if we're doing a culling activity, actually remove some of those urchins as we go. How, how do you do the cull? How do you remove sea urchins? Yeah, good question. It's um, it's pretty labour intensive. So we they're a native species, so we don't actually take them out of the water with us. But what we do is we have a one-hit kill method that we use. So um, we've gone out with all kinds of different uh, tools to see what works best. So we've done it with hammers, uh, chisels, that sort of thing. Um, we've now got these sort of custom-made urchin steers, we call them, which is just like a PVC pipe with a weighted head that gives like a really good blunt force to um, crush the urchin. And I guess the intention is that we um, kill it in a single hit. So obviously it's um, more ethical for that organism, but also so that there's no chance that we don't actually kill it and it can survive or um, suffer. Um, So basically we just kind of pops um, and releases um, all the material. So, yeah, it's quite dramatic and brings in a lot of fish coming in for a feast when it's underway. Mm. You mentioned that these are a native species. Is this a problem that's, you know, just emerged or do we think that it's been a problem that pops up every now and then all the time? Yeah, it's a tricky question because they are a type of organism that has... Their, their life cycle means that they can produce really quickly in good conditions. So if you think about rabbits on land in good conditions, they can go crazy and then they might die right back and as soon as those conditions come good again, they can pop back up as a problem. Um, so it's a little bit similar with um, urchins in that they can produce thousands and thousands of offspring. So it only takes a small shift in their environment to suddenly go from a healthy population to a really overabundant population, which is what we're seeing now. Um, but we certainly think um, climate change is one of the big drivers in the issue. So things like um, we had the millennial drought uh, quite a few years ago that affected the kelp community in the bay. So um, our dominant kelp species, which is uh, called a clonia, was sort of wiped out, not fully wiped out, but um, was depleted because there wasn't as much nutrients running into the bay. 
And that means that the type of food that the um, urchins prefer became more dominant. So these things like drifting algae and turfing algae popped up a lot more. Uh, and that led to more urchins, which then means that it's harder to go back to that old system because as that bigger kelp comes back, um, it just gets eaten before it has a chance to actually establish. So it's, it's really complicated and there's a lot of different factors in it. Um, and I don't think anyone can say they know the one cause or exact reason, and it's probably a lot of things that interplay. Um, but certainly it does seem to be occurring perhaps more significantly and perhaps more often and then also for longer periods of time so all those things seem to be increasing a little bit. That raises the question you just mentioned climate change there are there things apart from culling that we need to be looking at to manage you know how the urchins interact with their ecosystem in the bay? Yeah I think a really important thing that we uh, obviously work with work on with parks is having protected areas. So areas where um, you can't take any fish, you can't take any of the, um, the plants or other materials in that area. Um, we have three in the top half of Port Phillip Bay, so Jawbone, Point Cook and um, Ricketts Point Marine Sanctuary. And those are all protected areas which like provide a bit of a sanctuary that then allows us, if we do have these big um, you know, changes in the number of urchins and knowing that they are somewhat temporary, we have these spaces protected where we can then reseed those areas. But it relies on good, healthy pop, uh, populations of predators, so things like snapper and um, rock lobster that aren't uh, fished in those areas because of the protection. So that linking between protected areas and then the health of the whole bay is really important. Mm. And, and that actually that makes me think do, so you, you, I mean obviously you're from Parks Victoria you're mainly responsible for looking after the marine parks but do you do any work you know, around the marine parks or in other parts of the bay? It's a good question and I get it a lot from the community people know their local beach and they say well there's heaps of urchins there um, obviously Parks Victoria we have an estate that we manage which is different patches of land so our resources are pretty dedicated to those areas um, but there's good science to say that by tackling targeted spaces the way that we are, we should be able to have, you know, it's more, it's a bigger impact than just what's happening on that site. Um, so again, there's, the urchins have quite a big range. So uh, removing urchins in a small area actually leads to a thinning in the whole site, like quite broadly, um, but also protecting healthy um, remnant patches of um algae means that they can then continue to seed the rest of the bay so what we see with the urchins is they usually tend to kind of move through like they head in a direction and they'll graze heavily but then they'll move out quite quickly because the food source is gone so as long as there's reseeding that can happen back into those sites then the recovery can be relatively quick but if we lose too much algae or um, yeah, of those species across the bay, then there's nothing left to reseed that area that's been grazed. So, yeah, I think the, the direct impact that we're doing, the direct work we're doing is within the sanctuaries, but we're anticipating that it will help support the bay health uh, more broadly. Is there anything that the local community can do to get involved with um, looking after these sanctuaries that you're involved with? Yeah, definitely. So we... Um, Parks Victoria are running 
uh, managed urchin cull activities. So these are generally on scuba. Um, you'd have to have a pretty good level of fitness and competency in the water because it's very physical and quite tiring um, work, but uh, we do encourage volunteers to come along with us. The best way to get involved in those is to go direct through the friends groups that are involved. So at the moment, uh, we're working with the Jawbone Marine Sanctuary Care Group and Marine Care Ricketts Point. So if you're interested in it, I'd suggest um, jumping onto those groups and becoming a member because we do offer um, spaces to their members first. It's pretty limited how many we can take out at a time um, and we want to recognise the support that they've been giving us by giving their members the first go. Um, the other option is to sign up on Park Connect as a volunteer and you may see activities listed on that platform as well. Right, one last question for you. So you're a ranger for marine sanctuaries, which, I, which must be quite different to being a ranger on land. Um, what's it like? Yeah, it's great. I love it. <laughs> it's a really good uh, gig. I think people don't necessarily know that our parks, um, Parks Victoria do manage marine sanctuaries. It's not the first thing people think of. They might think of the prom, but more like the land parks. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's a very diverse job. We have different things every day, um, like a radio interview today, and then who knows what tomorrow. But, um, yeah, it's a great, a great job. It's really, um, yeah, it's quite challenging and interesting, and we get to try and get out in the water, under the water and on top of it, um, and look out for our sanctuaries. That was Jill Wheeler, a ranger at Parks Victoria. You can learn more about sea urchins in a webinar on the 10th of August, part of Parks Victoria's celebrations for the 20th anniversary of the state's marine national parks. Head to parks.vic.gov.au to find out more. And just a reminder to please make a donation to Out of the Blue if you can. We're two-thirds of the way to our target and need your help to keep bringing you stories about our coasts and oceans. Head to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate or call us on 03-9419-8377. And that's all we've got for you for today's show. We'll begin you, We'll be with you again next week. And in the meantime, stay well. Yeah.